Hello and welcome to episode three of the Football Brains podcast, where I, your host, Nick Pasquet, talk to various football brains from all corners of the game. Today's episode is an extremely special one, and I'm so excited and massively grateful to be joined by Manchester United legend Gary Pallister. Thank you so much for giving up your time today, Gary. No problem, Nick. The majority of people listening to this podcast will be fully aware who you are and the incredible things that you've achieved in your career. But for the younger area of the audience particularly, and just to highlight your achievements, Gary played for Manchester United for nine years between 1989 and 1998 under Sir Alex Ferguson, winning four Premier Leagues, three FA Cups, a League Cup, five Charity Shields, a European Cup Winners' Cup and a European Super Cup. And when we talk about the players that you played alongside, the list is endless. Beckham, Giggs, Robson, Cantona, Scholes, Schmeichel, Key, Neville, Bruce Irwin. I think I could fill an hour podcast just listing the names, to be honest. <laughs> but, but for you, Gary, I mean, it's probably hard with a list like that. But who do you think was the best player you played with and who comes maybe a close second or third? Well, as you've just mentioned, that list uh, is quite an extensive one. Um, and the answer I, I, I've given... Uh, since uh, probably the day I arrived at Old Trafford is is Brian Robson, um, and again you talk about different players that I played with. You know how good Cantona was, Beckham, Giggs, Keane, Schmeichel was probably the best goalkeeper in the world for five or six years. Um, but I just think I, I used to call him the man for all seasons because he ticked all the boxes uh, of a great player and a great captain. And, uh, you know, he also had Manchester United in his blood, I guess. Um, but he could just do everything. Um, he was great going forward. He was great at protecting his back four. Um, he could manipulate referees on the pitch. He was <laughs> He was nasty. He had a great mentality about winning games. Uh, and he drove the rest of the team on. And um, for a while, when I was first at Manchester United, whenever he wasn't in the team, I think we were a little bit like a rudderless ship. Uh, we didn't have that personality to fall back on. Um, then he come back into the team after injuries, and it was kind of a relief because he was back in there, um, sort of guiding the, the the team, if you like. And he um, was just such a huge personality in that dressing room. And um, so that that's the reason why, because I think he was the complete player. Yeah, no, I understand that. And and yeah. you finished your career playing under him at Middlesbrough, right? So. Yeah. What was he like as a manager as well? And was it, is it a bit strange going from being mates playing with someone to then playing under them? Yeah, difficult. You know what I mean? Because I'd, I'd, I'd known him for, I mean, obviously I made my England debut and Brian was, was captain of England. Um, so I'd met him there. And then I played um, for five years with him at, at Manchester United. So for, to go out to a dressing room where he was just Robbo and you would give him a bit of steak and have a bit of banter. So all of a sudden being your manager, um, was a was a little bit difficult, and you've got to call him boss or gaffer or whatever you want, you know. So <laughs> you kind of said it with a wry smile on your face, but no, it worked. It worked out fine. I mean, he he, you know, he had a great start. It was manager managerial career at Middlesbrough. Um, when you think he brought the likes of Janine in, um, Emerson, um, he brought Gazarin, Merson in, um, and it was you know Middlesbrough never seen the like of some of these players that arrived at uh, Ayrson Park and then the Riverside. Um, and that was all down to the charisma and personality and reputation that Robbo had. So um, he could attract them kind of players. Um, you know, his managerial career probably didn't end up where he wanted it to end up and to go on to manage Manchester United possibly. But um, I think he had a decent crack at it. Oh, that sounds great. Um... It must have been, like, we've mentioned the names of players that you've played with, and it must have been incredible to get the chance to play with so many world-class players. But who were the best players you played against or the ones that, on a Friday night, you feared coming up against on the weekend? Well, I played against this guy. I always, again, I get asked that question a lot of times. And <laughs> the name I always come up with is Romario. I played against him twice um, uh, in the Barcelona games in 95 or 96, I think it was. And uh, we drew two all with him at, um, at Old Trafford and got beat 4-0 at the new Campbell, 5-0, I can't remember what it was now. Tough place um, to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
And we were, we were, and listen, I'm looking for excuses here. We were hampered by the European rule at the time, and we couldn't play our full team. Yeah. Um, but they had two players that night, Stoikov and Romario. Um, Dennis was up against Stoikov, and uh, he said that's the, the best performance he'd ever seen, the best player he'd ever come up against. And I was up against Romario, and I think that was the only time in my career I came off the pitch and thought, couldn't lay a glove on him. I, I couldn't get near him. He was, he was on a different planet. And uh, the funny story behind all that is that he went missing. He went AWOL from Barcelona leading up to that game. He went off uh, just, as I say, went AWOL and went to the Rio Carnival. And, uh, Shame he didn't go missing on the pitch. Yeah, yeah. Well, he went missing for like, I don't know, four or five days. And he came back and, and he was fined two weeks' wages by Barcelona. And I think our game was the first first game back, so... I always wonder what he'd been taking when he was over in there. <laughs> it does <laughs> raise questions. Because he was untouchable. He was unplayable that night. And uh, it's hard to admit that as a, as a, as a fellow professional. But um, the, the lad was on fire that night. I think he scored two. The one four. Him and Stoikov were yeah. just untouchable. Well, as well as your main role to keep the goals out. You, you got yourself on the score and assist sheet a number of times over the years. Uh, 15 goals and 16 assists, to be precise. Um, I've gone back and watched all of these. There's a video on YouTube on the Man United channel with all 15 goals and 16 assists. And my inner analyst couldn't help but notice a trend. Like, I mean, to start with, you, obviously it's clear that you were so strong in the air from corners and a lot of your goals scored were from bullet headers. But what I also noticed was that 12 out of the 16 assists were from headed knock-ons to a teammate. So you were often positioned quite a distance from goal. And then the likes of Hughes, McClare, Bruce, Cole, those kind of players were in the six-yard box. You'd be the target. You'd then win the head and knock it on. And they just poke home, normally with one touch. And this <laughs> happened 12 times. Out of, like 16 assists for a centre-back yeah, is a lot of assists. In nine years. It's not, it doesn't happen that often. Yeah, true. Oh, I, I used to say that, I mean, because Brucey got a lot of plaudits and, and rightly so. I mean, he, he put his head in where Angel's feet are tread. And um, that's why he ended up breaking his nose so many times. <laughs> but um, no, I used to say to him, I said, I'm, I'm just your decoy. That's, I'll, leave, I'll leave you to get all the glory. <laughs> uh, but that, that, was, that, that was the way it was I mean obviously being the tallest guy in the team I attracted the biggest defender so um, you try and neutralise that it leaves it to me to try and compete with that um, Was it something that you worked on directly or did you just have a really good understanding well, with them? As a team back in them days we very rarely did set pieces mm. uh, we relied on the, the imagination and the quality we had on the set and the, in the team at the time so it was funny. I mean, the only time I really remember was working during a week on, on set pieces was, unfortunately, I scored two at Anfield uh, on the back of it. Um, and we'd, um, he'd had a, a letter from a, the former army, army colonel or something um, talking about um, decoys, in, in, where he was decoys in army manoeuvres and stuff like that. And we decided to try and use this analogy and, and, and use decoy runners in our set pieces for this week leading up to Liverpool. And it worked an absolute treat. I mean, we could have scored four or five goals from the set pieces that we... So we should have probably spent more time on set pieces. <laughs> With that free scoring at the time, we, we probably didn't do it enough. Um, but it, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's something that... Gary Neville just, it, it just happened to have a long throw. And, uh, you know, he could chuck it to the near post, more or less. So, um, we could compete with the likes of the Wimbledons and the Sheffield United at that time when it came to set pick. But it wasn't something we really practised on. We just, it was kind of like, you know, Gary Neville's got a long throw. You get yourself up there and try and flick it on or, or score directly or, or, or do whatever. Um, so, it was just, it was a, a lot of stuff back in them days. I think we had, we had a lot of leaders in the team that I played in uh, throughout that 90s. And uh, you were given responsibility to sort it out for yourself a lot of the time. And, uh, and, and that's what we did. So very rarely did we practice set pieces. Well, that's really interesting because, I mean, when you did and, and then you scored two at Anfield, you can't beat that, can you, as a Man United player? But I mentioned that a lot of your goals came from headers. 
Um, but there's one goal you scored that really is special above the rest. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> you just won the league in 92-93. And this was the club's first title for 26 years. And this was the last home game of the season against Blackburn. Before anything had happened in the game, just the crowd scenes, the general atmosphere around the club was unbelievable. And right at the end of the match, United win a free kick. At this point, you're the only outfield, peer, uh, outfield player that season not to have scored. So you took the free kick and blasted it into the bottom corner of the net. Was that always the plan? When did you become aware of it? Was it a case of, move out the way, lads, this is mine? Or did someone else say, come on, Gary? Well, it was definitely a case of that. But I'd, I'd already pre-warned the lads. There's a, there's a video um, that uh, MUTV views over the years. It's me in the, in the dressing room at half-time. Because we allowed the cameras in there because we already won the title. Yeah. Um, but the prelude to that was um, when we came in and we were already buoyant. Um, coming into the dressing room or coming and arriving at Old Trafford that night. And um, it was a real kind of party atmosphere about the place. We'd, we'd had a good drink the night before. <laughs> we celebrated around the Still Prince. won. Huh? Still managed to win the game. Still, yeah. yeah. But, um, so we were in there before the, before the kicked off and I wasn't getting my strappings done. And Brian Kidd walked in and, and, uh, and his kid or did because he, he was quite a, a character. Uh, he just walked over and said, "Big man, do you realise you're the only player who hasn't scored this year?" I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "He said even Parks has scored this year, and Parks only ever scored one goal for Man United, I think." And he said, "Worse than that." He said, "But he, Peter Schmeichel's scored. He scored from open play in a in a European tie. He come up from a we needed a goal in the last minute. He scored. So he's you know really found it quite hilarious that I was the only player that hadn't scored that season. So." At half-time, after much ribbing from the lads, you hear me saying, if we get a free kick, I'm taking it. And the lads are sort of laughing and joking. And uh, Anyway, we went out and nobody thought any more of it. And fortunately, Robbo died on the edge of the, edge of the box in the 91st or 92nd minute. And we get a free kick and Giggsy's round it, Dennis is round it, Cantona's wanting it, Incy's wanting it. Um, and as you say, I just pushed them all aside and said, let the, <laughs> let the big dog have a look. And... Uh, <laughs> Managed to smash it in the bottom corner, but it took a slight deflection. And if you ever watch the the, the reel of it or the replay of it, you see Dennis there running up to me and running up to me and going, "It's an own goal." It's an own goal. <laughs> <laughs> that was a you can't of... take that from you. That was on target. That's definitely yours. Yeah, yeah. Oh, crap. try and take it away from me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was. I mean, that was a great ending to to what was probably the. the the best atmosphere I can ever remember in Old Trafford. Um, it was an incredible buzz that night because there was so much emotion after 26 years of pain um, and, and United being thrust in the, the headlines for all the wrong reasons that uh, eventually we got over the, got over the line and, and brought the title back. You know, it's Gary Palace has round the ball. He hasn't scored this season, has he? I just wonder if they're saying, go on, big man, have a go. The crown is there to be received. Yeah! I absolutely love going back and watching the the older footage from before I was born and soaking up the history and and that genuinely was one of my favorite moments just it just topped off like you said a fantastic and historic season like the beam on your face when you scored mm. Fergie's exactly the same the whole crowd is I bet you couldn't stop smiling for weeks after that was that no, one of the best I mean, moments yeah. in your career it, yeah absolutely I mean it, you know you, you never get sick of winning titles or cup <laughs> Or, or whatever, but um, that that thing, and, and you got imagine it was it was magnified because of the the disappointment of the season before when we lost at the Leeds and we felt as though uh, we were dealt with unfairly. We had to play four games in eight days. I think it was at the end of the season, and we just ran out of steam. And yet we felt as though we were the, we were the better side uh, over that season. Um, so we, we use that as uh, motivation for. For, for that season as well. So the whole thing at the end of it was relief. And, uh, you know, I, I also remember going into the dressing room and Samat Busby was there. You know, so for him to go 26 years without seeing his beloved Manchester United not win it was also a special moment because he was in the dressing room celebrating with us after the game as well. And I've got a fantastic picture of me stood there with him, albeit half my head's cut off. Um, <laughs> I stood there with Samat Busby in, in, in 93 in the dressing room. So... Great memories, great celebrations, um, great relief. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it does kind of, when, I, when I, I look back, I'm like, 
it comes up on the, on the TV, it does bring a tear to my eye because they were just fantastic times. It really was. I absolutely loved going back and watching mm. that. What, what other moments in your career with United or Middlesbrough would you put up there? What comes close? Well, I was very fortunate, I think, because you, you start off with Middlesbrough and uh, Middlesbrough went into liquidation in 1986 and mm. uh, the club nearly went bust. And I'd literally just started playing. Uh, I came into the game late as a 19-year-old uh, from non-league football and my career was just getting started and the club went liquidation and was literally, I think, an hour away from going bust and being out of business. Um, a lot of players left on free transfers. We were left with a, a skeleton squad um, and a lot of young players who were untried and untested. I myself had only played um, half a season in the championship as it is now what was then the, the second division. And um, the manager who brought me in had, had been sacked um, the previous season. And um, it, was, it, was, um, it, it was tough. But we were left with, a, a, as I say, a very young squad. And uh, we went into the third division. And uh, we, were, we were made favourites to get relegated. And um, average age, of the, I think, of the team was about... 21 or 22 and um, we got promoted that year an incredible incredible achievement and it took everybody by surprise um, I think we were then made one of the favourites to get relegated the following season when we're in as what is now the championship and uh, we got promoted in that division by the playoffs so that was a great journey to, to start my career with you know the the problems that we had with liquidation to to then go from, we were training on parks for, for a long time before that season started. To get two promotions in a row was, was an incredible achievement. We did get relegated the following year from the, the top flight on the last day of the season. And then that's when I decided to leave. But, you know, that, they were great days. And then all that way through the, the, the nine years I was there, we were, we were challenging for trophies. I was playing with great players. We were playing with an expectation. We were playing in front of full houses at Old Trafford. Old Trafford was getting changed. The, the, uh, the, the stands were becoming bigger. There was more people to come, come and watch. So it was like the renaissance, if you like, of, of Manchester United. That renaissance period of change everywhere. The pitch, the stadium, um, football itself, with the, the, the advent of um, the Premier League. Um, so they're just incredible, incredible times. The, the Cup Winners' Cup in '91 was to beat Barcelona in a, in a cup final in Europe was was very special, um, and still probably the best party I've ever been to in my life afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, where do you start? Playing for England is yep. unbelievable. They come from non-league, and then all of a sudden, three years later, uh, I'm, I'm representing my country. It, you know, it. it it was just unbelievable stuff at the time. You were representing England um, whilst in the second division at some point, I believe, weren't you? And that's yeah. not that's not yeah. a common thing at all in football. No, no, I was. I think I was the first player for a, a period of time that had been brought in from um, the the second tier. Um, Bobby Robson was the manager. Um, there'd been talk about me um, being wanted by several other clubs in the, in the top flight at the time. And, uh, you know, while I was reasonably happy at Middlesbrough at the time and we were going forward, I, I was quite, quite happy to stay there. I was enjoying my football. But um, in that last year, we got relegated. I was having uh, personal problems in the manager. Um, we, and I wasn't really enjoying my football. Uh, didn't enjoy his style of management and uh, that's when I decided that I, that I was going to get out and, and, and look to leave so uh, I was very fortunate in the end that, that um, well after initially I was supposed to go to Liverpool uh, Liverpool were the first club to get in touch with my agent and um, fortunately for me as it turns out that um, they couldn't they wouldn't pay the the transfer fee that uh, Middlesbrough wanting, so um, I'll be ever um, um, in debt to uh, Sir Alex and, and Maurice Watkins, who was representing Manchester United that night at the meeting with Middlesbrough, um, to pay the fee and, and get me down to Old Trafford. I'd love to know a bit more about the um, 
the transfer story. This is something I was going to come on to anyway. The transfers are a, a huge part of being a footballer. There's very few players go their whole career without moving at some point. But as a player in the situation where you're looking for a move, like you were there, do, do you almost feel like powerless because it becomes down largely to agents and club representatives? You feel powerless? No, because ultimately the decision lies with you. The yep. decision was with me was to leave Middlesbrough. I, I, I went away on holiday and decided the best thing for my career and personally was, was to move. Um, you know, I felt as though I was, you know, loyal to, to Middlesbrough up until that period of time. You know, there'd been talk about what the club's been interested. I never rocked the boat until um, that decision had to be made. As I said, it wasn't just a, um, a career thing, it was a personal thing as well. And uh, yeah, no, but I, I, I went to win it. I didn't have an agent at that time. I went and got, it was the guy who was in charge of uh, England, sort of commercial um, side of stuff. I went and got him to represent me as an agent. Just said, look, see what's out there. Came back with Liverpool, that fell through. And the day after that fell through, he came back and said, look, I know you're disappointed. Um, you know, it's Manchester United who want to take it. So, um, oh, yeah, you don't feel powerless. I think you, you're always in, you've got to be strong enough to be in charge of what you, what you want to do, where you want to go. I mean, it's daunting going to Old Trafford, don't get me wrong. There's, there's times after that I got there, I was thinking, have I done the right thing? But oh, I think even with an agent and, and clubs and as powerful as clubs are, you've got to be strong enough to make your own decisions in life. So. That's some, that's some really interesting insight. Thanks for that. I've, I've heard a story that you, when you were joining United, you spent quite a long time in a car park. Um, yeah, well, seven hours or so yeah. waiting. Oh, God knows how long it was. No, <laughs> it was ridiculous. A uh, place called the Tontine Restaurant on the year 19. And um, we played at, um, we played at uh, Sunderland. We also played at Sunderland on a Sunday, I think it was. And... Um, there was a meeting arranged with my agent, um, the manager of Middlesbrough and the, the, uh, the chairman of Middlesbrough, Ernst Alex and Maurice Watkins was arranged after the game at the A19. I met my agent over Scotch Corner. We drove down to the car park. I was in my big, I don't know, big, I was in my sponsored car and plastered all over it. And we arrived at the ton time. My agent was in his big Rolls Royce and um, he went in to just see if, if everybody was there. and. When he walked in, uh, the manager of Middlesbrough said, if he walks in Pallister, then the deal's off. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's nice. Um, in, in the car park. And I think, I think I, I, we arrived there probably about seven, eight o'clock. And I think the deal was concluded about three, four o'clock in the morning. That's mental, isn't so, it? Were they updating you along Alex, the way? Alex coming out every hour or so saying, look, because I think they originally didn't want to go for 1. I want to say 1.6, 1.7 million. And the deal ended up at 2.3 million, which back in them days was a huge amount of money. And it was a British record transfer fee, which for me, you know what I mean? When you think Neil Webb, who was a seasoned international, went for 1.5 million. Tells you how ridiculous that fee was. But, you know, fortunate for me, they were, the club were uh, desperate to get something over the line. And uh, they pushed the board out and... Uh, yeah, it was it was a long wait, and there was there was all kinds of things going through my head at the time, um, self doubt and um, frustration, and thinking if I've got to go back to Middlesbrough and, and go through all this again, um, then it's going to be a long season for me. So, yeah, it was a tough time, but eventually they came out and and uh, said we've agreed a deal, and then uh, they had to go in and sort out my personal terms. So. Uh, the night did drag on a little bit, but it was worth it, I've got to say. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy story, but when you look at what well, you had no idea then what you were going to go on to achieve with United, I suppose it's fantastic how it worked out, isn't it? Can't beat it. Were there, any, were there ever any opportunities for you to leave United and move abroad? Um, not that I was aware of. Um, I, never, I never heard of anything. I think there was, I think there was a time that, some, I remember reading something in a paper. I can't remember what team it was now. Um, but I mean, I, listen, I was I was happy at Manchester United. It was, do you know what I mean? I think when when things are 
going great and you're challenging and you're playing in, in front of that crowd and you're playing for a, a club as, as iconic as, as Manchester United, you don't even think about, about leaving. I know players have done. And like you look at Ronaldo and he had a dream about playing for Real Madrid. You can't knock him for that and wanting to leave. But for me, uh, Manchester United was as big as it was ever going to get because, you know, I think they're the biggest club in the world. So maybe I'm, I'm biased in, in that. But you look at the support, you look at the tradition, you look at the history. Um, and there's a mystique about Manchester United and Old Trafford and um, for me, it's the it was the the pinnacle and the best place to play. Yeah, I mean you've summed that up perfectly. I completely agree with every word. As a United fan, surprising. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a club that attracts fans worldwide, and I completely yeah, agree absolutely. with that. You've you've played in many different stadiums across your whole career. Which ones do you think had the best atmosphere, or where were the hardest places to go and visit? I've got to say the new count for one, haven't I? When the four nil. I mean, Barcelona and I, we played at Juventus a couple of times at the Stadium del Alpi, uh, and that was that was a terrific atmosphere, terrific stadium. Um, another place that was kind of well, it was a great atmosphere was Galatasaray. Uh, unfortunately, it was tinged with um, a lot of uh, evil behaviour, shall we say. Um, you know, that, the, the way we were treated by not just the fans over there, the police over there, the officials over there, um, left a real sour taste in my mouth. Um, but the atmosphere of the stadium, you can't fault. Um, Never known anything like it. There's four sides of the stadium making a like noise that you've never heard of before. And that's like about well, two hours before the kickoff. Um, so that, that was an incredible atmosphere. It was great playing at Anfield because <laughs> the two biggest clubs in England, the rivalry is um, a little bit intense, shall we say. Anfield uh, is really special. And you know it's one of the iconic stadiums. Um, so that 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 was a great place to go, um, but yeah, I, I think probably Mars. I never played at um, uh, Milan's um, ground. I never played at Real Madrid at the Bernabeu, um, which which was a shame because I would have loved to, have, 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 you know, seen what it was like there. But um, yeah, I'll settle for the new Camp. I think there was hundred thousand in there that night, so that was incredible. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you on that one. Definitely yeah. not an easy place to go. Something that gets a lot of attention in both the media and academically as well is the concept of home advantage. We've seen, for example, in, since the Bundesliga in Germany's restarted, the number of away wins has shot up without fans in the stadium. Mm. Was the idea of home advantage something that you felt as a player? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you've got... <laughs> you've got... 95% of the stadium behind you, cheering for you, wanting you to do well. Um, you're in familiar territory, you're used to the pitch, um, the pace of the pitch, and the, dy the, the dynamic of the pitch, you know, the size of it and what have you. So everything was comforting when you got there. When you, when you arrive somewhere as an away player, you're, not, you, you, you're out of your comfort zone, if you like, and the fans will make it as difficult for you as possible. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a massive thing in home advantage, and it is. I can understand why that you know you say the Bundesliga has been away wins because now playing at home, it's different. Do you know what I mean? It's not that different for the away team going there, but it's hugely different, I think, for the, for the home side because they haven't got that backing, they haven't got that comfort of everybody being behind them, and it's almost like you're playing in a practice game. So I think it detracts from. Um, from the side that's playing at home and gives more of an advantage to the away team. So if that's the way it's um, turning out at the Bundesliga, I'm not surprised by that because it's very, very eerie. I mean, I remember playing reserve games at, at Ayrson Park in front of like 30 people, 40 people. And it's just, you know, it's just a weird atmosphere when you're used to that stadium being like half full at least for games. And um, it kind of, detracts from that intensity that, that the home player has. So 
yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. No, I, th- I think that's a really good point. I mean, the best the home fans get at the minute is cardboard cutouts in the crowd. Um, <laughs> I'd like to, to change the subject a little bit now. I want to talk about the boss, Sir Alex Ferguson. This is probably a really difficult question to answer because there's so much to him. But what was it, if you could pick out certain things, that made him so special and as good a manager as he was? I think if you ask any of the lads that played under him, <clears throat> they would say his man management. Um, there was a little bit of fear there as well because basically he's got your career in the palm of his hand and you're playing, as I've already said, for the, the best club in the world. So, you, you, you know I mean? He's got that authority, um, if you like. And he knew where to draw lines. You know I mean? He would play cards with us on the back of the book. But back at the back of the bus, and and have a crack with the lads, and uh, but you know, he he draw a line at like maybe coming and having a drink with us in the hotel or or something like that. He would, you know, what I mean, he, you'd know he was the boss, and he wouldn't really, um, I don't know, let his guard down from that, if you like. Um, so you always had him up there on a on a plinth as you know the gaffer, the boss, the man who's in charge and you know there was times he had to um, really hammer that home with, with different players um, I've seen massive arguments almost becoming a fight in the dressing rooms with him and um, you know he stands his ground and he puts it you know what I mean he gets his point across and it was a fearsome sight when he was when he was on one of his rants but ultimately I think the great thing with him and what I, and something I didn't find with it a great deal many managers was what if you did have a fallout with him the following day it was forgotten about it was put to bed you discuss it maybe um, in a more rational kind of way and you put it to bed and you get on because the next game is the most important one um, so that was something that I really enjoyed because you know I had a difficult relationship with manager at Middlesbrough and um, you know, I didn't want that to happen um, at Manchester United. But he was great at doing that. He pushed the buttons to get different individuals to work in, uh, at their very best levels. Um, so, yeah, I think with all the strings to his bow, I think uh, man management was certainly the one that stood out. I mean, he was one of my childhood idols growing up, to be honest. Eight-year-old me was just in, in awe of what he was achieving. And mm. honestly, he's probably a large reason why I'm pursuing working in football now because you grow up as a kid seeing all the success with the club and things like that. Yeah. Did you, did you realize at the time or when you first joined and started playing under him that you were playing for someone that would go on to be considered the greatest football manager of all time? No, you're not aware of that. I was aware. I was massively aware of what he'd done in Scotland. Um, you know, that, that is huge to break up um, the old firm. And, and be so successful as he, as he was, and then going on to, to win a European trophy with a little Aberdeen. Kind of separated him a wee bit, and it was no surprise that he was made the manager of Manchester United. But, um, I think them first three years were, were kind of tough. I don't think he um, expected to, to take so long um, to really um, have a team that he could call his own, I suppose. And that's why, you know, in, in, in that 1989, he brought myself, Neil Webb, Mickey Phelan, Paul Ince and Danny Wallace into the squad. Um, huge amount of money spent at the time, or it seemed to be, um, to really uh, turn the squad over. Um, it's hard to see. You never see, you, you never know that he's going to be um, possibly the best of all time. Um, but you knew, you knew there was something about him. He had that authority. He had the air about him. That when he came down onto the training pitch, the, the session went up by 5-10% because he was there watching. He was there on the sidelines. You didn't want to upset him. You didn't want him to get cheesed off with you. One of a better word. <laughs> um, so he had that aura about him. Um, but yeah, I mean... he. he he was, he, he, was, he was tough to work for. He, he was tough to work for because he was very demanding. And uh, if it didn't go well, he, he'd let you know about it. But, um, 
he just there was a way about him. You know what I mean? As I say, you've got to keep a sense of authority. You can't let that slack because if players see a sign of weakness, they'll be weak. They'll take advantage of that. And uh, he never let that slip. And uh, I think that's that, that's part and parcel why he was so great. I think that's that's really interesting, sort of like the balance between being a friend and remaining authoritative. How mm. did his methods or ideas evolve over the time you were there to keep the team winning? Um, well, I remember a conversation with him. must have been around about 19... It would have been around about the mid-90s when we were just starting to get a grip on English football. We'd won the title in 93, the double in 94. Um, we lost out on the double in 95. And uh, I can't remember where we played at. And I, you know, as I said, we used to, I used to be in a part of the card school. We used to play hearts at the back of the bus. Um, myself, Brucey, Brian McClare, the gaffer, um, Robbo in the early days. And we, we'd sit there playing cards. Anyway, I was on the bus early and the, the manager would come on and we sat, just the two of us sat in the back of the bus waiting for the rest of the card school to come on. And um, just talking about the game, talking about football in general. And I, I remember him saying to me then, he said, you know, he said, he said, football's changing, Pally. He said, there's going to be a time when you're basically going to need two squads, uh, two teams of international players in a squad to compete on all levels. And this be, this was like a few years before squad rotation really came into it. And the squads did become bigger from like squads of 18, 20. He started looking at squads of 26, 28. And they're all internationals. And he saw that coming in 94, 95. And, you know, that's that's an insight. That's, that's you know I mean? Everybody talks about Arsene Wenger bringing um, diet into, uh, into Arsenal and better living and, and, and stuff like that. That had already happened at Manchester United before Arsene Wenger had come. We, we brought a dietitian in. We started changing stuff in the canteen at, uh, at the cliff. Um, I remember him bringing an eye specialist in to help with your peripheral vision, you know, because that's something that, you know, they, it, it, and it, this, this goes back to the grey strip. You remember the grey strip at Southampton when he told everybody to take it off? This is because... As the eye specialist told him, grey is the worst colour shirt you can wear when you're playing in front of a crowd because it, the, the grey gets lost in the background of, of, the, of the fans' colour, which is predominantly black and grey. So your peripheral vision doesn't pick it up as well. So as well as just probably being a little bit superstitious, there was also a science to the fact why we changed, why he didn't want to wear the grey strip anymore because the eye specialist had, had told him this. So wow. he's always looking at getting that extra 1%, you know, that extra whatever advantage in any way he could, whether it be diet, whether it be eyes, whether it be uh, pediatrician looking after your feet, um, all sorts of different ways to eke out what he could to get the best out of his squad. Wow, That's fascinating. I mean, especially on the, on the side of squads getting bigger and needing two international squads as you say look at the squads now like you look at man city and stuff you've got someone like riyad Mahrez, who's won a premier league title and player of the year sitting on the bench every week but (laughs) how quickly did he move on from that first title in 92 93 to focus on looking ahead to keep it up because you went on to win the league three more times over the next five seasons what's the balance of enjoying it and then, or his balance of enjoying it, and then getting everyone to screw their heads on to focus he on next season. Kind of enjoy the moment and celebrate it. I mean, he did always tell us to celebrate. We didn't need to be asked twice to, to go out and celebrate <laughs> back in them days, uh, winning a title, winning a cup, uh, anything like that. We, we had a great environment, great team bond. Uh, we enjoyed celebrating together. Um, but he would say, enjoy the moment, and then when you come back you prepare to work it's you know what i mean that's forgotten about it's what what happens next so he always had an eye on the future um, and some things like you know when you talk about ince kanchelskis and uh, sparky like he was leaving at the time they did in the, the squad of 90, uh, 92 coming through the class of 92 um i think andre kanchelskis forced his hand um when he left Inside, and you know, 
I'm never quite sure what happened with, with Incy um, and Sparky, but a huge part of that team. And I've got to be honest, as, a, as one of the senior players left and, and chatting to the, like Brucey and Dennis and Peter, we were all concerned. We knew these kids coming through were really good. Don't get me wrong. But it takes your time. You think it's going to take your time from to integrate themselves into the team, get used to the Premier League, get used to the demands of, of Manchester United at that level. Um, and you think that we're maybe going to spend a couple of years trying to get back to being at the top again. Um, but the kids, the, the lads, the Beckhams, the, the Nevilles, the Skulls, Butts, um, just took to it like ducks to water. Um, obviously, the, the, the will to win had been instilled in them because, you know I mean, they, they, they trained with the first team squad. They knew what it was like. Any training session with, with them bunch of lads was tough. It was competitive. And you had to learn to, to be at your best in training, never mind football games, to be in your best to train and to live with these, with these guys who, who, who they looked up to. So um, the standards were there. Um, and, uh, and they, they, they adapted to that. But yeah, I mean, he had, yeah, you've got to look at him with the foresight to think. I don't know whether he thought we could win it that year. I don't, I'm not so sure. I don't know. But um, he had the foresight to know that these lads coming into the team were, were, were going to be the, the cornerstone of that, that side for many years to come. Uh, it's a good job he did trust them because look how things worked out. On, on training specifically, um, how did Sir Alex structure his training sessions? Like, what, what were the key focuses and how would a week structure sort of play out for you? Um, well, yeah, I think he left a lot, in, certainly in my time, he left a lot to Brian Kidd. Um, Brian Kidd came in, into being first in coach in 91, I think it was. Um, Archie Knox uh, decided to go to Rangers, I think. And that didn't go down well because they were really good. But Kiddo was, was, was excellent. He went away and, and studied training at, at, in places like Brazil, Spain, Italy, uh, all over the world, and, and tried to, to glean information from that and bring it back to, uh, to, Man to Manchester United. And our, our training did change for the better. It became a more scientific approach. And um, I think, um, you know, I think the gaffer would say what he wanted to, to work on, particularly in a week. And, um, Kiddo would implement the training sessions to, to work alongside that. And, uh, training was, as I said, training was really, really competitive. Um, and it, it became, a, a, instead of like running up sand dunes and running up hills until you just couldn't run anymore, it became a, more of a scientific approach to what you needed in games. And training became the better for it. Um, so I think Kiddo has to take a huge um, pat on the back for all that. Um, but yeah, it, 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 normal, it all depended. I mean, a lot of the times we had two games a week. We were playing in Europe midweek, uh, playing on a Saturday and a Sunday or a Sunday. Um, so you'd, you know, especially when playing in Europe, so you'd play Saturday, you'd be in for a massage on Sunday, you'd have a look at a video of, of the team you're going to play against during the midweek. Um, you'd have a, Light sessions probably on the Monday and Tuesday, play on the Wednesday. If you and then you may be traveling on the Tuesday, so um, you didn't do an awful lot of intensive training unless you you, you got a week off. Um, and then it all depended how we felt. Sometimes you play on a Saturday, give you Sunday, Monday off. You'd come in, train Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, have a light, very light Friday, play Saturday. Um, but yeah, I mean, in them early days, in them early days when we had a week off, if we if we we had a Wednesday off, sometimes, and he would, um, Robbo would what we call what he was we we would call a a team meeting, which was all the lads going down the pub after the hard <laughs> session on a Tuesday. We had the Wednesday off, and and again, I mean, that's it's a different time, but again, they were great great times, great days. Um, just sitting in a pub with a few beers, just being a group of lads having a crack, and um, they, they were memorable, memorable times. Um, such such fun, such great laughs that um, 
know, and it became part of why I think we were successful because I think a lot of the lads had each other's backs and uh, would go the extra yard to to get over the line and, and win a game. So, um, yeah, it's probably frowned upon now. Um, but back then in, in, in that kind of era, um, I think it was a great part of team bonding. Now, I, I've heard it on the grapevine that Gary Neville was a bit of a lightweight. Can you confirm or deny this? I was a lightweight, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he was to be fair to Gary um, when he was, was kind of younger. Um, he didn't have anything else in his life apart from football. Um, he was just obsessed and he wanted to be the best and he didn't want to drink and he didn't want to... What he would do, and, and same with Andrea. Andrea wasn't a, a, a drinker, Andrea Konchelskis, but they would come along and they would sit there with it and, and be part of it. And, it, you know, you didn't have to turn up. You didn't, it wasn't, you, wasn't, you weren't going to get chastised if you didn't. Um, but the, he made the effort to come along sat there with his orange juice or his coke and, and, and just being part of that team and part of that environment. Um, so it was great. But I mean, in the end, Gary Neville was the party organiser. So, you know what I mean? This was a young Gary Neville we're talking about, but yeah. as he became captain and a leader in the dressing room, um, you know, it probably didn't happen as frequently as, as what it did back in my day. But if there was a, a day out or a night out to be... Um, to be put together, then it was it was down to Gary Neff to do it. <laughs> yeah, you all converted him nicely then. But again, <laughs> as you say, like that, that even if he didn't want to be involved in that, it still all benefits the whole team bonding and the the working environment and being a group, doesn't it? Um, whilst we're on the topic of teammates, uh, who were the biggest dressing room characters? The quieter players, the jokers, and the one most likely to get in trouble? Um, Sharpie. Was probably the one most likely getting in trouble. Um, when him and him and Giggsy were together for a wee while, there's a famous story of the manager coming around the house and finding them, preparing for a night out. When the when he told them that uh, he wanted them all to rest up for the week, um, but he had a a bit of devil in him. Scorsy and Dennis Irwin, when he had a drink, got a little bit uh, sharp with the tongue, shall we say? Um, Incy was a larger than life character. Um, I don't know, they're, they're probably the the ones. Sparky was quiet. Um, myself, Brucey, Chucky was the intelligent one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, nobody really was mentally in. I mean, Maisie was a bit crazy when he, when, he, when he came. Very quiet for the first year and then a little bit crazy after that. Um, but you need all kinds of personalities to make a changing room interesting, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, we certainly had a few. I mean, Eric was, Eric was different. Eric Cantona was different. But yeah, he and Brit, he loved going out for a day out with the lads. He'd be like a rubber when we going out for a team meeting again. Which at a time, this is when the foreign players were sort of going, oh no, the English, they, they, they eat too much and they drink too much and they're, they're very unprofessional. And Eric could be like, when we going out again? So he was a breath of fresh air in that way. You know what I mean? He loved that environment of the lads just being together. So... Those kind of foreign players all appreciate good British pubs then? No, they probably didn't. That's what I'm saying. A lot of the foreign oh, yeah. players who were over here at that time would be like, well, the English, they, they, they're bad, bad diets and they drink too much. And, and that was the way football was back then, I've got to say. You know, there's a lot of you know, the Liverpool lads, the Arsenal lads. Um, you know, there, there was a, a bit of a drink culture in the game. You look at, I mean, there's, Footballers now are athletes. There's, there's, you know what I mean? There's six-packs. You don't see a football yeah. without a six-pack now. I mean, you very rarely saw a footballer with a six-pack back in our day because sports science has moved on. You know what I mean? Diets have moved on. Money's moved on. Um, the demands have moved on. The game has changed. Um, and you've got to adapt. And, and that's why you, you look at these players now and they're incredibly fit, incredibly toned. And and uh, more like Olympic athletes now, so it helps with the, with the football. What do you think got the best out of you as a player? Was it the hair dryer treatment, or or more or a more calm, clear approach? Um, if you asked uh, the gaffer, he'd probably say it was the hair dryer treatment. <laughs> um, I was quite a laid back character, I think. 
kind of guy and I'd probably need somebody to press my buttons to get to get my dander up a wee bit shall we say um, so I, people would tell you that. I don't know I, I, I preferred a much calmer approach without the confrontation but um, yeah maybe it, maybe it did take somebody to um, to press a button and get a rise out of me before I I played at my peak if you like but um, yeah I'll leave that for other people to maybe decide it's hard <laughs> to judge yourself as to what yeah. kind of character you are because you, you're just living in yourself so um, yeah I'll leave that to the gap at this age you mentioned already your brace at Anfield in what was this dubbed the title decider at the time and I've heard that Fergie still wasn't happy about something with you after the post-match interview or something like that yeah yeah that was uh, well as I said we've been working on set pieces all that week before the game and we we then played Borussia Dortmund in the semi-final of the European Cup on the Wednesday and uh, he'd gone out to do a an interview before me and unbeknown to me he said oh it's great that we scored from two set pieces but that was all off the cuff we haven't been practicing that at all this week and so then they come into the room and ask, ask if I'll go and do an interview. And obviously you scored two, you're, you're buzzing. And you're like, yeah, true, right? I'll come and tell you about my two goals. So I went out there, you know, they asked me about the the, the, the goals. And, and is that something you've worked on? I went, oh, yeah, we've been working on it all week and it's worked an absolute treat. So I walked back into the dressing room afterwards. He's gone ballistic. Well, I didn't want to brush it up. I know we've been working on set pieces. And you're going out telling the whole I'm like, Jesus Christ, aren't they? So I got a hairdryer after scoring two at Anfield and putting Liverpool out the title race and going out feeling uh, a million dollars after the cup. From coming in feeling a million dollars, feeling like we've just thrown away the, the European Cup <laughs> after the game. So High yeah. standards. He's a tough man to please, I tell you. <laughs> you. You'd think you'd be let off the hook after scoring a brace against the club's biggest rivals, wouldn't you, really? You would think. Yeah. Anyway, um, something that we don't get to see much, like for people that watch football on the telly, is pre-match and half-time talks. So how much is discussed specifically pre-match first in the changing rooms? Like, is it more game plan, motivationally focused or both? Um, well, we used to come in, I'm sorry, I think we, we, would, we would arrive at 12 on a match day at Old Trafford um, for pre-match lunch. Um, we'd have that, it'd probably take us half an hour, three quarters an hour, and then the lads would just mosey on down to the players lounge watch a bit of football focus or whatever and then about half one we'd be called into the home dressing room for a team meeting and um, he would just go through stuff about the team we were playing against to look out for and what he expected from the game how we would pan out what he expected from us um, and just generally yeah, give you give you instructions um, for the game, but nothing. I mean, listen, the games and and chats change for different games and uh, different um, opposition. Maybe a semi final, it would change. For if you was you were in a final, maybe a bigger speech and a bigger rallying call. Um, but he was very incisive and very um, detailed in 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 what he would talk about. You know, I mean, you could hear a pin drop while he was talking because everybody was tuned into that. Half time, depending on what had happened. <laughs> you know, I mean, you come in sometimes and think he's going to go ballistic and he didn't. You come in sometimes and think you played well and he'd go ballistic. And uh, I think it was all just to, to keep you on your toes. But um, <clears throat> yeah, depending on what happened in the first half, gauge what kind of um, team talk you'd have um, at half time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in there when it's been very volatile. I've been in there when it's been very calm. Um, but that's that's the beauty of, of the manager. You never you were never quite sure what you were going to get. Um, but if somebody else was getting a hair dryer and you weren't, you weren't on the end of it, you found it quite amusing. <laughs> I bet. 
I'm interested to go to go more into the details on this because the area of sport that I'm studying now and looking to go into full-time employment in in the future is performance analysis. Nowadays, with the advancement of technology and the money in football, we have data scientists, general club analysts, opposition analysts, recruitment analysts, and they're all, these are all working for most clubs now. And the amount of analysis done on teams and players is extraordinary. And most casual mm. football fans don't have any idea that it's happening. I'm really interested to know what analysis or match preparation was like when you were playing because I think it's only really become a, a proper thing over the last 15 years did did the ideas of opposition analysis any kind of data or individual analysis exist when you were playing yeah we, yeah, we had scouting reports coming back from from teams um, especially European teams we'd have videos uh, say that we used to watch because we weren't used to playing playing these sides so you, you get an insight into who you're up against um, in my latter years at United, they had the, the stuff where you got the data from how far you'd run uh, when you'd sprinted, all that kind. I'm trying to think what the, the thing was called now. Um, but that analysis would come back, and Brian Kidd would get all that. And if you wanted to go and see him and talk to him about it, um, you could do. Um, we hadn't what I mean, now the way the heart monitors, we didn't have anything like that back in my day. Um, so you could see how hard players are working, which is a good job for me because I was never the best trainer. Um, but yeah, I think, as you say, I mean, it, I mean, um, the training ground um, where they are now in um, God, I can't think of the name of the place now. Carrington. Carrington. Yeah. Um, was completed um, the season after I left, so that had its own sport scientists. Uh, sports science uh, wing in the training ground, which was which was huge. Um, so things began really beginning to change back as I left uh, Old Trafford in '98. Um, do I think it's? I think it is good. I mean, I've 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 spoken to managers about it, and saying you know, I mean, sometimes you've got to go with your own gut feeling, not just what the data says. You've got to go with the mental sort of side of things, and. You know, I, I remember certainly back in, in you know, when, when Kiddo was, was doing all that. And I think that uh, Brian and, and the gaffer would, would have fall not fall I was, but would discuss times when the players needed a rest and when they needed to do a little chew up to get a little bit more fitness in the legs. And uh, they didn't always agree. And I think that's because, you know, mentally, I think the manager would look at players and say they needed a rest or the need, you know, they need to get a little bit more on the legs. So it, it, it wasn't always relied upon with the scientific data. It was, it was a good feeling by the manager as well. Whether that still prevails into today's modern football, I don't know. I would guess it does because, as I say, I've spoke to two or three managers who, who say the same thing. It's not all just about the sports science. It's about, the, you know, how good the, the players are feeling mentally and, and, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of, especially when you're playing at a club like Manchester United, there's a real intensity to, to playing for the club um, because you, the expectations are so big. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear because personally, I'm, I'm much more into the video analysis side of things than the data because I think it's really easy just to present data and then a player look at it and go, so how, how's that going to help me? So let's say you were playing in today's game and you've got the access to all the analysts, all the video of the opposition, all the strikers you're going to come up against, all the video of your own strengths and weaknesses, what would you find useful and want to receive? Or would you just want to be left to play your own game? No, I think, I think in this day and age, I mean, I look back at, I mean, I, listen, I, I look back at my time and go, do you know what? I wish I was as fit as some of the players now. Uh, I wish I had a six pack. I wish I... <laughs> didn't maybe drink as much, um, didn't have takeaways a couple of times a week, <laughs> had a better diet, um, a better understanding. And uh, I think that's the way it is now. Um, so I think, I, I think if I was playing now, I would take all that on board. I think it helps you become a better player. It helps you become stronger, um, hopefully not have as many injuries. Um, and yeah, become become more athletic around the pitch. I mean, I think, I mean, one one thing I, I I am kind of envious about in today's football is the pitches that we play on. 
I mean, these are bowling greens. When you look at some of the pitches, I was the other game on the other day. I was watching at Old Trafford. It looks like a paddy field. Yeah, <laughs> and we've got great footballers playing on this pitch, and it was you know I mean it was a scrap. It leveled the game out because you know I mean teams that would just scrap. It made it, you know, I mean, it was it was the leveler for them, you know what I mean. So, I look at um, the pitches to play on now, and not just my team. I look at, you know, I mean, how, how much better we would have been. You go back to the Babes, you go back to the team that won the, the European Cup in '68, and go, wow, um, how, how good would have they been on that pitch? Law best Charlton playing on them kind of pitches. How good would they have been? You know, I mean, it, it's mind-boggling because. Yeah, but you can't you can't really blame a bad bobble anymore because the pitches are that good. Yeah, I mean, when I go back and watch old games, you see all the the mud patches around the goalkeeper's box and the centre circle. And it, yeah. if if you can play incredible football on that, as you say, imagine what you could do at the carpet at the Emirates now yeah. or at Old Trafford. I, I, yeah. I, listen, I, I, as I say, at times it levelled things out against what I you know, we were a, a very good footballing team, had great threats, pace, wingers. Uh, imagination with with Cantona and 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 it was it was a fantastic side, but we could have been so much better on 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 a pitch that you could trust. But you had to you very rarely could play one touch on uh, on on Old Trafford because you'd have to be, you'd have to secure possession of the ball in such a difficult with such a difficult bobble and on that and that kind of pitch to before you could then pass it on. So it kind of slowed the team down a little bit. Um, so yeah, I'm very jealous of the pitches they're playing on right now. Do you think that's caused the role of the centre back to evolve? Because nowadays you look at Harry Maguire playing for United, and he'll take the ball and dribble it out past the opposition press just comfortably and drive into midfield. Do you think that's that's a lot easier to do now with the better pitches? Absolutely, absolutely. You get you, you couldn't trust the pitch. You couldn't. You know what I mean? Your touch was always tested. Um, Whereas if you get you, you you can you trust that you're not going to get a bobble ninety nine times out of a hundred. Um, that first touch, you can be more confident in, in in putting it where you want to 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 bring the ball out if you like. Um, but yeah, I think that's. I mean, football has changed now in in terms of the way they play out from the back. All these all the teams now try and stretch the game, make the the park bigger, so there's more space for their um, their quality players to. Um, to be able to use, um, so you've got to have centre backs, full backs. Uh, everybody's got to be comfortable on the ball to play out from these difficult. I, I, I'm not sure I agree with it all the time. I think there's a time, you know, you just want it away from your goal. Uh, it, you know, it invites a lot of pressure onto your own team. Um, but that's that's the way that uh, the game has moved forward. Probably down to to, to Pep Guardiola. Yeah, yeah, and you certainly, as you said, you've got to have the right skill set to be able to do it effectively mm. I'd like to get quickly your opinion on the current state of United like how far do you see us from challenging for the league what's your opinion on the recent signings and young talent coming through like Greenwood and Rashford really stepping up now um, yeah I mean it, listen the early part of the season was very difficult um, he was put under immense pressure um, you know, it's he's he's made he's made some good signings as Ollie. Uh, and I, I you look at Wan Bissaka, you look at Harry. Um, but I think this Fernandez um, could take the team to another level. Um, from what I've seen of him so far, um, he's got a great determination about himself, great willingness to to want to go the extra yard to win a game. He's got the vision. He's obviously got a good shot on him as well, and uh, he's got a work ethic, which you know um, you don't always get with these kind of players. Um, and he's not afraid to let people know on the pitch when he's not happy as well. So um, these are the kind of characters you want in a winning team. As I said before, we were fortunate. We, we had probably five or six leaders, five or six captains in the team that I played in. Um, we haven't probably got that many in this side and we haven't had for a, for a number of years now um, <clears throat> but Harry's got he's got the captaincy now and I think he's he's not afraid to, to tell people what he thinks I think Fernandez has got an edge to him um, 
So, you know, I, I'm, I'm really delighted with the signings that, that Ollie's made. And, you know, up until this, the pandemic, then, you know, the, the team looked as though it was kind of turning round. Um, it'd be interesting to see how we do come back um, after this layoff. And we can still grab all of that momentum that we had and, and get through to, to qualify for the Champions League. But um, I think it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, definitely. But I, th I think, as you said there, the direction in terms of transfer dealing seems to have really taken a positive turn under Ole. We're, we're not just buying big names for the sake of it. There's like a, there's a clear idea and a logic behind all of the moves, and especially with Fernandez. I did some analysis on him over a year ago when he was playing in Portugal. And at the time, I wrote in an article that I published saying, I really think we should go in for him. And we didn't that summer. And then he came in in January. So I was ecstatic. And, and as you've said there, his not just his footballing ability, but his personal traits as well. Like I've seen some interviews with him. It's, he's, I think he's going to be an absolutely fantastic addition. How do you rate as a centre-back Maguire and Lindelof as a centre-back pair? Um, if you'd have asked me that question about uh, the start of last season, I would have said Lindelof was struggling. Um, to, to, you know, I mean, I, I think the Premier League is different from, from, from what he was used to. Um, <clears throat> and he... You know, I don't think he'd really come to terms with it. Um, I think he's become a, a far better player. Um, whether he's the actual answer to um, Harry Maguire um, to play alongside him, I think you probably need to see it a, a little bit more um, from him. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm delighted with Harry Maguire as a, as a centre-half. I think, as I say, he's become a, a little bit of a leader um, as well in, in the captaincy role. Um, but it's, it's up to Lindelof. I mean, listen, Bailly could still push his way in there. He, he started really well at Old Trafford and injuries had taken its toll on him. Um, he came back and had a real couple of strong games for United towards the end of the season, or what was, you know, up until the pandemic. Um, so there's maybe still a chance for him. But um, you, you keep hearing that they're still looking for another and dominant centre-half, so maybe that's that's possible. I, listen, in terms of signings, I hope we go and buy Sancho uh, from Dortmund. He's English, um, knows you know about the Premier League. Um, he's now got international status. He scores goals, he assists. He's that kind of player that um, I think would really make an impact at Old Trafford. So, fingers crossed we can get him across the line as well. Okay, just to finish this off then, what's, what's the plan moving forward for you? Have you considered any coaching or management or punditry? Oh, I'm too long in the tooth now for all that. Like, I've seen what it's done to some of my mates. Um, I'm good friends with, obviously, Brucey, Tony Mowbray, who is still in the game. Um, and uh, <laughs> too many stressful nights. For, I mean, it's, I kind of thought about it. I wanted to have a sabbatical when I, when I first quit the game. I wanted to get away from the intensity of all that. And then I started doing a bit of media stuff and I quite enjoyed that. I do stuff now at, at Old Trafford. I'm at all the games working there. Uh, I do stuff with the sponsors and stuff like that. So I enjoy that. I see Dennis here when I work with Robbo on a match day. Um, Coley's there. Um, you know, quite a few. Frank Stapleton's there. Lou McCary, Arthur Alveston. And it's great crack, Andy Ritchie. And we have we have a great laugh on match day. So uh, I enjoy that kind. It keeps me involved. And uh, yeah, I'm too old now for the intensity of being a coach or a, or a manager. I'm too long out of the game as well, probably. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think that sounds great also. And that uh, that brings us to an end of this podcast. Gary, I, I honestly can't thank you enough for chatting to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure and so insightful. I never thought I'd get the opportunity to do anything like this and I'm, I'm truly grateful. So thanks a lot for your time, Gary. Pleasure, mate. I hope it all goes well.